because lyrics matter. What we say in songs matters. Lyrics always matter when it comes to music. I still remember being a teenager and getting a brand new CD. Now, for some of you who are mere babies, this is a compact disc right here, okay? It comes in a jewel case, which always breaks. And in a jewel case or in a CD case, there's something called the liner notes. And you remember these things, right? I loved getting liner notes and reading through the lyrics of the songs and, and all that good stuff, seeing the pictures of the band, all of that. But inevitably, what happens a lot of times is no CD, but still have the liner notes. <laughs> Ever happened to you? Like, where did that thing go? Who borrowed that? Uh, then you try to track them down. Well, when we come to the book of Psalms, essentially what we have is that. We still have the liner notes of the worship of Israel, but we have lost the music. We don't know how these songs sounded exactly, but we still got the lyrics. And so that's what, what we have in the book of Psalms. Now, I used to pour over the liner notes in, with a CD. I would, I would examine the lyrics and I'd be like, what is the artist really trying to say, you know? I remember one of my buddies at one point saying, Mark, you're overthinking it. Just enjoy the music. <laughs> but for me, I, I'm like, what is the author's intent? What is he really trying to get at with this song? Somebody goes, oh, that's about his girlfriend. And somebody else is like, no, that's about God. And you're like, well, what, what is it, you know? I would always try to examine the lyrics. Any good artist is communicating something with their lyrics. Even Taylor Swift is sending a clear message with her new release that everyone's talking about. There's always a, a meaning. There's always uh, uh, something to the lyrics. But oftentimes, when it comes to poetry and when it comes to art, it communicates on a deeper level. You know, even as we sang these songs, it, it, our heart is engaged, right? We're affected in more than just our mind. Something about music stirs our soul. And sometimes the author has an even deeper meaning than we even know. I remember being a teen and hearing somebody tell me that the, the classic song Hotel California was actually about the establishment of the Church of Satan. Ever, anyone ever heard that before? Am I the only one? Okay, a few of you. <laughs> I remember looking at the lyrics going, is that what it's talking about? I don't know. Uh, in fact, I remember how disappointed I was when uh, they told me that Puff the Magic Dragon wasn't actually about a dragon and a boy. And I was like, that's a great, <laughs> great movie. I don't know about those, okay? I don't know the author's exact intent there, but I know when we come to the book of Psalms, we have lyrics that mean something, and what we're going to see this morning is that there's actually an even deeper meaning that maybe you've never considered before, or maybe you have, but hopefully that'll be magnified this morning as we open up the Scriptures. We must remember that the book of Psalms is not an epistle, a letter like Paul's. It's not a historical narrative. It is poetry. It is art. And so when we come to it, we must treat it as such. Turn to Luke chapter 24, which seems weird because we're talking about Psalms. But turn there with me first because what we want to see, first and foremost, Luke 24, is what Jesus said about the Psalms. That's important as we set up this sermon on the Psalms and Christ in the Psalms. Luke chapter 24, what does Jesus think about the Psalms? Luke 24. And I encourage you to turn your Bible or your phone or your tablet because I'm not sure that every single scripture we're going to use today, and there's going to be a bunch, are going to be up there, okay? So Luke 24, here we find the disciples in the upper room. And Jesus Christ has just resurrected, but the disciples aren't sure 
what to make of it. They've heard Jesus is alive still. He's not dead anymore, but they haven't yet seen him, most of them. And so they're trying to make heads or tails of these accounts, these stories, these reports that Jesus is alive. And suddenly in verse 36, it says that Jesus stood among them. So they're, they're talking, they're chilling, they're just there. And all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is there. Imagine how shocked they were. And then Jesus eats a meal with them. He, he shows them that he's not a specter or an apparition or a ghost. He is in the flesh and in the blood. And so we come to their dinner conversation in verse 44. Look with me, Luke 24, verse 44, over dinner, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So here we have Jesus explaining the true meaning of the Old Testament to his disciples. And as the author, he has the right to tell us what is intended to point to, and that's himself. Jesus mentions the law which is the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the book of Psalms. These are the three main sections of the Old Testament. And he, he proceeds to tell them that they need to understand these are written about him. And if you glance back at verse 25 through 27 of the same chapter, you might remember as Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus and he spoke with those two individuals and they didn't know it was Jesus yet. But he starts to explain to them, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that would have been a sermon, right? I was reading this last week about Dwight L. Moody and his sermons and how powerful they were. But I want to hear this sermon where Jesus starts to take you through the Old Testament and help you understand, hey, this is about me. And here in Leviticus, this is me. And that would be a phenomenal sermon to hear. Now we know that Jesus took, uh, that the disciples took Jesus' words to heart. When he says, the entire Old Testament concerns me, we know that they took his words to heart because if you read the New Testament and their writings, what do they do a lot? They quote the Old Testament and they tie it and they connect it to Jesus Christ. So they listen to Jesus in all their writings. Now you don't need to answer this, but in the New Testament, what do you think is the most often quoted book. Think to yourself, what do you think that might be? A lot of people would say Isaiah because Isaiah is quoted a lot in the New Testament. It's actually Psalms. Psalms is most often quoted in the New Testament. 79 quotations with hundreds of allusions that saturate the pages of the New Testament. The main point is this, the Psalms are quoted a lot in the New Testament, which makes sense because Jesus told his disciples, hey, it points to me. It's about me. Now, I don't know about you, but the book of Psalms is pretty dear to most of us, right? We love the book of Psalms. We love to open it. We love to read through it. You might even have a favorite psalm. Mine is Psalm 73. I love that psalm. And I I was over teaching the friendship class at Crown Point a a little while ago, and uh, that's the the class of the senior saints. And I, I just asked them, I said, hey, what's your favorite psalm? And we went around the room, and a lot of these individuals who've been walking with the Lord for a long time 
they all had a favorite psalm that God had brought into their life. And the psalms are so dear to us. We identify with, they speak to our soul and they put into words things that we can't seem to even say. I don't want you to notice this. If we read the Psalms and we enjoy the beauty of the poetry and even how it makes us feel as Christians because we're struggling or we're rejoicing and we miss Jesus Christ in the Psalms, we've missed something that is paramount. We've missed something that is key. It'd be like attending a wedding and the, the, the bride is coming down the aisle and you're so caught up in the beauty of her dress that you fail to see the beauty of her face. Because the wedding dress is simply meant to showcase the beauty of the bride, right? And the Psalms are meant to showcase the beauty of Christ. So this whole series has been called Songs for Sinners, right? You've probably got that by now. And truly this morning, what I want you to see is that Jesus is the song for sinners. He's the melody that splashed across all the pages And the sheet music is filled in with his character and with his beauty. So let's take a little bit of a look at this messianic melody in the Psalms. Let's explore the brilliance of this Savior in the musical masterpieces that we know as Psalms. So let's look at Jesus in the Psalms. We saw what Jesus said about the Psalms. Let's look at him in the Psalms, starting with the reign of Christ. Now, one of the primary ways we see Jesus in the Psalms is as king. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us because most of the Psalms were written by a king, whether King David or King Solomon. And all throughout the Psalms, we see this theme, right, of these royal Psalms that talk about the monarchy of Israel that God established in David and in Solomon. And yet, when you read these Psalms, there's often times when there is no possible way that that Psalm could have been fulfilled in David or in Solomon or any human king for that matter. No, they're pointing to a greater king. They're pointing to Jesus Christ. So I want you to look at Psalm 2 to begin with. Psalm 2, right in the beginning. If if you're trying to find Psalms, you go to the very middle of your Bible, you'll probably get close. Find Psalms. And then I want you to find the big number 2, Psalm 2. We'll be jumping around a little bit here, but I want us to see what God's Word says about Christ from the Psalms. So Psalm chapter 2, starting to read in verse 1, we're going to read the whole Psalm. This is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
Now, if you were to look at Acts chapter 4, Peter and John and the early Christians, they applied Psalm 2 verses 1 through 2 to Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He is the anointed one, the true anointed one that is spoken of in this psalm. And this psalm, Psalm 2, is quoted a number of places in the New Testament, always connected to Jesus Christ. What do we see about Jesus' reign from Psalm 2? Well, as you look at the text here, you see first, resistance is futile. When we talk about the kingship of Jesus, when we talk about the reign of Christ, it does no good to resist it. I mean, the people plot in vain. Opposing this king is futile. Even worse, it says, if you make yourself at odds with Jesus, if you make yourself an enemy of Jesus Christ, you face his wrath and you face his fury. Jesus' reign is guaranteed. No one can change that. He is king on the throne right now. Verse 9 says that, and the entire book of Revelation tells us that his reign is going to cover every corner of the globe. It's going to extend everywhere. And so then if resistance is futile, the only wise response would be worship. Notice what it says. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And as I read that, I thought of Psalm 100. Remember Psalm 100 that says, serve the Lord with gladness. And I think it's important for you to note here that we should always have a mixture of fear and joy as we serve Jesus. Always in our hearts should be a mixture of fear and joy as we serve this king. Some Christians get get this wrong and they might have fear but no joy. And what that tends to lead towards is legalism where you're just afraid that God's going to smite you with a lightning bolt and I just have to perform But if you have a lot of joy and no fear of God, that tends towards lawlessness and sin. You think, ah, Jesus is my buddy, you know, we're bros and we hang out. And I've heard people say that. No, Jesus is a king like no other. And his power is no joke. He is never to be mocked. And just a little side note before I move on, I want to encourage you to think about your, your language. How do you speak about Jesus Christ? I hear a lot of people use his name flippantly, or maybe even say things like, oh, my Lord, or good Lord, or Lordy, or these kind of things. And maybe you never thought about what you're saying. Like, what am I saying when I say that? Well, Jesus is Lord, and his name is sacred, and he is king right now. I want you to flip over to Psalm 72. So same book, go over to Psalm 72, big number 72. And here we again have the reign of Christ. We have the kingship of Jesus Christ. Psalm 72. Now Solomon is writing these words here. He is a king. But I want you to notice the psalm. Verses 1 through 4, Psalm 72. Solomon says this, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of people, of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So here Solomon is writing and he is begging God for something. Notice he's pleading for the ability to be just, just as God is just. To be righteous as God is righteous. As a king, he wants these things. He wants to rule with justice. He wants to rule with righteousness. He's asking for a prosperity. He's asking for protection for the poor. But then as we get to verse 7, I want you to note verse 7 here. Something starts to change. It starts to sound a whole lot bigger than Solomon. Verse 7. 
In his days, in the king's days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I want you to look down at verse 17. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This kingdom, it endures longer than Solomon was around, and it extends far greater than Solomon could have ever even of contrived of in his mind or imagined. This is a kingdom that cannot be contained within borders of Israel or any nation. It extends to every tribe and every tongue, and this king is to be served and worshipped by all people. Now, if you were around here at Bethel the last year, we had a whole series on the kingdom, did we not? And we saw that when Jesus came, he ushered in this kingdom in a new way. He came proclaiming the kingdom of God and his miracles and certainly his resurrection told everyone the king is here and the kingdom is here in a new way. This is a kingdom that is so different from the kingdom of man. Man's kingdom, pick your country, pick whatever king, whatever ruler. A lot of times it's full of death and darkness and despair and futility. But Jesus' kingdom is far different. It's full of light and life and truth and purity and power and beauty. And Jesus is the king of this kingdom. He's reigning right now. So all throughout Psalms, you're going to see as you read the king and referring to the king, Jesus. The reign of Christ is a major chord in the book of Psalms. If we want to say it this way, it's a major chord as you read through the Psalms. But now I want to listen to a minor chord. One that's full of some dissonance, especially when we put it side by side with the reign of Christ. When we think about the kingship of Christ, we now come to the sufferings of Christ, and there's some dissonance here. How does it jive with the reign of Christ? Well, the sufferings of Christ are all throughout the book of Psalms. And I don't use this word minor because the theme of suffering is infrequent or sporadic in the Psalter. Rather, the the lament Psalms are the most common genre of all Psalms. But I use the word minor as in the sense of a minor key or a minor chord. It's got dissonance. It's sad. And I tend to think that some of these psalms may have even put to music that was minor. I can't prove that. That's a hunch. But I'm guessing that the appropriate music would have been given for the appropriate words in these psalms. There are many, many times when you read the laments of the psalmist and you have to wonder, is he, is he talking about himself? Or is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about both? One thing we know for sure is that Jesus knew the Psalms and Jesus loved the Psalms and Jesus quoted the Psalms. And especially on the cross, the Psalms came out of him. The Psalms are in Jesus and Jesus is in the Psalms. I mean, it's what comes out of Jesus when he goes through difficult times. He just utters the Psalms. So he knew the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. And I want to give you just a couple here that applied to Jesus' suffering. Psalm 41. So I think you're over, I'm not sure where you are right now. Go back to Psalm 41 with me. And I'm going to look at verse 7 through 11 here of Psalm 41. Notice the sufferings of Christ. Now, as I read, I mean, certainly David experienced much opposition. And, and these words were penned by David from his heart. He's experiencing this, okay? But as I read, I want you just to picture in your mind's eye the crucified Christ. 
We know that this text was applied to Jesus, and I, I, it's, a, it's an amazing picture for what Jesus went through. So read with me 7 and following here. Psalm 41, starting in verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. So the mockers surround the cross. Can you just picture them there? And they shout out things like verse 8. A deadly thing is poured out on him. Absolutely true. Then they say, he will not rise again from where he lies. Au contraire. He will rise from where he lies. And look at verse 11 and consider the echoes of victory where his resurrection will come and he will not be defeated by his enemies. Of course, verse 9 is quoted by Jesus right before Judas betrays him. So this text is pointing us to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to flip back to chapter 22 because there is no place where the sufferings of Jesus are, not, are, are, are clearer than Psalm 22. Look at Psalm 22 with me. And Psalm 22 is where we're going to spend a bit of time here. You'll recognize the first couple of verses right off the bat. Okay, Psalm 22, starting at verse 1, David's writing and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Jump down to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust. Of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, where do you go when you feel forsaken by God? Have you ever been there before? where you just felt like God has abandoned you. I mean, you know in your head that, yes, he's supposed to still be there, but as far as you can tell, you feel forsaken. You feel abandoned. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe going through depression. Maybe family turmoil. I don't know, but where do you go? Do you run to a substance? That doesn't help ultimately. Do you just try to keep yourself busy with your favorite hobby? That doesn't help. Where do you go in times of feeling forsaken? Well, Jesus went to the Psalms. Jesus quoted the Psalms. That's what came out of him. He drew strength for them. And this, this is where I, I, I believe that God is so good, that he has given us this book. 
which includes something like Romans with weighty theology and something like Psalms that is poetic. That at times when you, quite frankly, if you open Romans, you'd probably be like, I I can't deal with that right now. But if you open Psalms and you start to read it, it resonates with your heart. It's poetry. It's saying exactly how you feel when you can't put it into words. See, that's a good God that gives us texts like this that not only would provide Jesus with what he needed, but they allow us to see Jesus as well. Have you ever thought about this? How could David possibly know all the things that are going to happen to the Messiah? How could he know that that Jesus was going to be mocked like this, this Messiah? He didn't know his name at the time, but how would he possibly know down the road that the Messiah would be mocked, that his bones would be out of joint, that he would experience thirst, that his clothing would be cast, that they would cast lots for his clothing? How could he know that? Well, he couldn't. It's impossible. Yet God orchestrated and he ordained that David would write these lyrics talking about the way that he felt, knowing that it would sustain Christ on the cross and that it would magnify the truth that Jesus is the son of David. He's the anointed one. He is the suffering servant. So we've seen a major chord in the book of Psalms, and that is the kingship of Jesus or the reign of Christ. We've seen a minor chord, the sufferings of Christ. And now we come to one of the loudest chords in the book of Psalms, and that is the saving work of Christ, the saving work of Christ. If Jesus says that the Psalms point to him, and he does, we just read that in Luke, and we also know that when he started his, his ministry, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's his mission. That's Jesus' purpose for being here, to seek and save the lost. It would make sense to us then that the Psalms speak often of salvation and deliverance. What's truly fascinating, though, is that when you read through the Psalms, They sketch the entire life of Jesus in some pretty copious detail. I mean, when you look at the whole book and you take all the passages that we know for a fact apply to Jesus because the New Testament writers tell us so, you start to piece together the entire life and mission of Jesus. So I want you to allow me to sing to you a a Jesus melody. I'm not actually going to sing it, okay? But allow me to share with you the story of Jesus. You can keep your Bible's open to Psalm 22, and we're going to end there, okay? But I just want you to listen, and you're going to see all the, the scriptures up on the screen. And the story begins like this. In about 6 BC, a baby boy was born named Jesus. But that was not his beginning. In fact, he had no beginning because he always was. He was in eternity past the Son of God, Psalm 2-7. The Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Begotten, not born, always has been. Eternally the Son of God. And not just eternal sonship, but eternal reign as an eternal king. Hebrews says this, um, Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 and says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Not just a king, but also a priest. Not a priest like Levitical priests, but a priest of a whole different order like Melchizedek, Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's an eternal priest, an eternal king between, uh, he's a mediator between God and man, always has been. Then Jesus is born of a virgin and he lives quietly for about 30 years. Then he begins his public ministry 
performing miracles and teaching in parables, which was prophesied, Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. He presents himself to Israel in the triumphal entry. Remember, he is riding on that donkey into Jerusalem. And what do they say about Jesus when he rides through? They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're directly quoting Psalms. But despite his immense popularity, so people started to conspire and they started to turn against Jesus, including members of his inner circle. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And one of his disciples named Judas betrays him, Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The conspiracy was executed at night, and a trial happened in the early morning. And around nine o'clock Friday, Jesus was crucified, and he was attached to a Roman cross with nails. Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And even the Roman soldiers, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing, right? And Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And there on the cross, Jesus faced incredible anguish, incredible pain. And Psalm 22 describes it like this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Jesus' heart echoed the Psalms and he even quoted them. And he said in Psalm 22, he said Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right before he died, he uttered his last breath And he said, Father, in your hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit, Psalm 22, Psalm 31. His enemies, including Satan, they gloated over his death. They they thought that they had won. His disciples, they took his body, they buried him. Pretty much everyone thought it was over. But Psalms and God the Father knew a deeper secret. In Psalm 16, we read this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. And on the third day, God the Father raised Jesus from the grave and he granted to him a kingdom and a rule, and a reign, and he had him sit at the right hand of the Father. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And in that very first sermon that was preached at Pentecost, when Peter preaches this sermon, he quotes Psalm, and he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you see what he did. He quotes Psalms, a bunch of Psalms, and then he says that Savior that was talked about in Psalms, that's who you crucified. He is Lord. He is Christ. You haven't seen it up to now. You've just read the Psalms one way, two-dimensional. It's much more than that. And 3,000 people that day trusted in Christ. And the church began, and so began the age when the proclamation of the gospel where we share that Jesus is Christ, that he is king, that he is Lord, that he is priest, that he is son, that he is all the things that were talked about throughout the book of Psalms. Now that's an inspiring song, isn't it, from the book of Psalms? That's a song 
that is pretty powerful when you see that Jesus is all throughout the psalm. So what are we supposed to do with that? We just walk away going, man, the psalms are awesome. What are we to do with this song? Well, first, of course, we need to listen to this song. We need to read our Bibles. And no matter where we are, whether we're in the Old Testament or New Testament, we need to say, how does this connect with Jesus Christ? Because somehow it inevitably does. Jesus said that very thing about the Scriptures. But then not just hear the Psalms, but my prayer is this, that we'll go out of these walls and we'll sing the song. And you don't even have to have a good voice, okay? But to go out there and to share with people, here's what the Bible is about. Here's what all of life is about. Jesus. We're called as believers to preach that, to proclaim it, to sing it. And you know what? God will do something. He will start to take hearts and he will tune those hearts so that they hear the melody of Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot of people that are tone deaf right now. And musically speaking, they, they don't have a musical bone in their body when it comes to Jesus Christ. They have no time to even hear him. But we let God take care of that. God starts to change hearts. He starts to prepare hearts so that when we share the melody of Jesus Christ from all of Scripture, people come to know Jesus. That's what we're about here at Bethel Church. We're about the fact that Jesus' melody is to be proclaimed and our prayer and our hope is that people out there will hear it and will trust in Christ. And then they will quote Psalm 40, a psalm that's loved by many, Psalm 41 through 3. This says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song on my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now that's David's testimony of deliverance. He penned those words. But isn't that an exquisite description of our salvation? How God lifted us up out of the miry clay, out of the miry pit, and set our feet on a rock. And that's our prayer is that more and more people can say that. They can say, yes, this happened to me. I was delivered from my sin. That's my story. That's your story if you're a child of God. Now, if you read throughout the book of Psalms, one of the things you see many times is cries of deliverance. You've read that, right? David asking God, deliver me from my enemies. Save me. Vindicate me. Rescue me. Be my rock. One of the things that's interesting is David always seems confident that no matter what's happening, even if his enemies are circling around him or they're breathing down his neck, that God is going to deliver him. He has confidence because God has promised to David promises that will never be broken, that he will always be with him, that his kingdom will endure. But David also had seen God time and time again deliver him. And because of that past faithfulness, David had this confidence that God is going to deliver me. God is going to rescue me. If you look back at Psalm 22, where we were before is where we're going to end. I want you to notice this. Here we have David. If we keep reading in verse 19, he's begging and he's pleading for God to deliver him, and he seems confident. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him 
All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Notice this. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David was delivered from his enemies time and time and time again because he was the anointed king of Israel, the very one whom the promise would come through. You can read all about that in First and Second Samuel. I encourage you, read those stories. Fascinating stories of deliverance where God answered the prayers that David sung with his voice and with his harp. And God always delivered David. But here's the craziest thing of all, and I don't want you to miss this this morning. Jesus, who is the greater David, who is the anointed one, capital A, capital O, who is the promise himself, he cries out for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says this. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And how does God respond? The Father does not spare his only son, but gives him up for us all. Remember, the psalm Set 22, these words are in Jesus' mind and they're in his heart when he's hanging on the cross. And certainly he knew, verses 19 through 24, he knew David's cry for deliverance. That was his heart too. But for our salvation to be secured, Jesus was smitten by God. He quoted verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so we would never have to be forsaken. The father turns his face away from the son, which is what David is crying out not to happen to him in verse 24. But for one moment in time, the only time this has ever happened in all of eternity, the father turns his face away and there was a rupture and there was a rift in the relationship of the Trinity. And we can't possibly understand this. We can't possibly understand how God can even do this. But we know that for one moment in time, Jesus' cry for deliverance was not heard so that ours could be. Jesus was cursed, Psalm 102, so we could be blessed. Jesus was shamed, Psalm 69, so we could be free from shame. Jesus was rejected, Psalm 109, so we could be accepted. And Psalm 109 says these words, in return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Jesus did a whole lot of good on this earth and he was rewarded with evil and his love was rewarded with hatred. But do you see what happens is we actually are rewarded good for our evil and we are rewarded love for all the hatred that we have had. This is a beautiful king. This is a king that we can worship and should worship. A king whose reign extends from everlasting to everlasting. And yet he took his throne and he laid it down, his crown and laid it down. He became a human and he suffered for our sins so that we might receive deliverance, though he did not. Jesus is the song for sinners. He's the melody that floats around the halls of this church. It should always be that way but not just in these walls. My prayer this morning is that as we go out there, that we tell the world how precious Jesus is, that we make our lives all about him because he is, he's the story of scripture. I mean, he is the melody that is 
dancing throughout Psalms and the entire Bible. And so, of course, our lives should be all about him. He's the center of everything we do at Bethel Church, always has been, always will be. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in this whirlwind tour of Jesus in the Psalms that you would reach our hearts. Lord, may we see Jesus in a, in a little different light through poetry. May we see the beauty of Jesus Christ. God, may we see the reign of Christ, that Jesus is king right now. And no one can challenge that. Resistance is completely futile to this king. In fact, worship is the only fitting response. So God, I pray that today we be reminded that we serve a powerful, mighty king. We also serve a king, though, who laid down his crown and suffered on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for how we can identify with the suffering that's explained in Psalms. And Jesus Christ identified with that suffering. Lord, may we understand what Jesus went through so that we could be delivered. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Every person in this room today, maybe there's someone here who's never bowed the knee to King Jesus, never submitted their life to him. Perhaps, God, they've tried to fit Jesus into a part of their life or relegated him to a spiritual corner, and yet, God, we're told that all of this is about you. It's about Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is about Jesus Christ, and certainly, God, our lives are to be about Jesus Christ. So, God, if anyone here today has never truly trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that today would be that day, that they would stop adding Jesus on and make their life all about him that for the very first time they'd be delivered from their sins, that their life would take on a whole new meaning. So God, I pray for salvation if there are any hearts here who need that. Lord, for believers, may we be reminded of the beauty of Jesus. Maybe we be reminded that we need to open this book and we need to pour over the pages because in every page is Jesus Christ. He's the melody. And then, Lord, I ask you that you would Allow us to leave this place and take that melody with us. Help us to sing about Jesus. Help us to talk about Jesus. May we not be ashamed about him. If everything is about him, then our lives should be about him and we should talk to people about him. And I just pray, Lord, for more individuals in this community to know you, to be able to quote Psalm 40 and say, he put a new song on my mouth. He lifted me up out of the miry clay. And Lord, if that happens, we will give you all the glory for saving souls. Would you use us? And would Bethel Church always be about Jesus Christ? In his name, I pray, amen.